هذا القرآن يوحدنا لطريق الخير يوجهنا الله تعالى أنزله ورسول الله معلمنا ورسول الله معلمنا بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد ما جيء بدرس السلام السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so we left off with talking about the articles of faith and we finished talking about what belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala constitutes and we talked about how the most important right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should be worshipped alone and we briefly talked about some of the dangers of shirk some of the dangers of shirk now we move on to the next section of the hadith where the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam continues on by saying his angels as well so now what's interesting over here is that you'll see for the next segment of this hadith, when the Messenger of Allah is talking about the articles of faith, he always attributes everything back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it started off with, and tu'minu billah wa malaikatihi wa kutubihi wa rusulihi, that you believe in his angels, in his books, in his messengers. Except for when you come to the very last point, which is the belief in Qadr, which is the belief in Qadr. And then we'll briefly talk about why that change takes place in Qadr. So first let us start off by talking about belief in His angels. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions His angels because these are a very special creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are a very special creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in fact, this is one of the creations that is unique to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you'll notice that there are certain things that as human beings, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed us to recreate and to reproduce. So chairs are easily reproduced, tables are easily reproduced. You know, even human beings, alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the ability to reproduce through his tawfiq. Now your creation that is unique to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone is his angels, is his angels. Now, when it comes to belief in the angels, you'll notice that there's two main elements in it. Element number one is what are we required to believe? And element number two is what are the thamarat or what are the fruits of this belief? What are the fruits of this belief? Now in terms of what are we required to believe in terms of angels, Shaykh ibn Uthaymin rahimahullah in <coughs> explaining the usul of iman or explaining the articles of faith, he says there are four things that are compulsory upon every Muslim to believe in when it comes to the angels that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created. So let us go through the list that Shaykh ibn Uthaymin mentions. He mentions number one, that it is compulsory to believe in their existence. Number one, it is compulsory to believe in their existence. Number two, it is compulsory to have general and specific belief in them. It is compulsory to have general and specific belief in them. By this, what Shaykh ibn Uthaymin rahimahullah means is that the angels have general tasks and then they have specific tasks. So general tasks of the angels is to constantly praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to constantly obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to constantly magnify Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is a general belief in the angels. And then you have a specific belief in the angels. We know that Jibreel was the angel of revelation. We know that Mikail is the angel that sends down the rain and brings forth vegetation. We know that Israfil is the angel that will be blowing the trumpet. We know that Munkar and Nakir are the angels that will be doing the questioning. So these are all angels that have specific tasks. So a Muslim is required to believe in the general objective of angels as well as their specific tasks. Number three, we're required to believe in the attributes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them. We're required to believe in the attributes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them. So who can tell me some of the attributes that the angels have been given in terms of their physical creation? What do we know about the angels? They have wings. They have wings. <laughs> Excellent. How many wings do they have? 
Excellent. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He starts off Surah Fatir by telling us that He is the one that created angels that have wings, two, three, or four, and He increases upon that, that which He pleases. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when He saw Jibreel alayhi salam, it is stated that he said that I saw Jibreel and he had 600 or more wings to him. He had 600 or more wings to him. So these are some of the attributes of the angels. What is another attribute of the angels that we know of? That they're created from light. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he created the angels from light. Fantastic. A third attribute of the angels. What do we know? They don't sleep. Excellent. The angels do not sleep. They are not like human beings. Go ahead. They don't eat. We're going to start going to specifics. Next one's like, they don't go to the bathroom either. <laughs> okay, those are good. Those are good. But we're looking for like, you know, specific things that are mentioned. Go ahead, in the back. What do you mean by that? Explain. That's a very good answer, but explain what you mean by it. Fantastic. That's what we're looking for. So the angels do have choices, but they are unable to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes them in Surah Tahrim, that these angels, they do whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands them with. So these are some of the attributes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the angels. Other attributes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the angels is that the angels are much, much larger than human beings. So the Messenger of Allah وسلم, when he describes Jibreel, he describes his wingspan alone, that it covers the horizon from the east and the west, that that is how large Jibreel was. In terms of their lifespan, their lifespan is also much, much longer than human beings. In fact, there's nothing to indicate that angels actually die, that they will only, you know, sleep when the trumpet blows, but besides that, they are not known to die as well. So those are some of the attributes that we know about the angels. So that is point number three, that we believe in the attributes that are given to them. And then the fourth and last point that is compulsory to believe in in terms of the angels is that we, that we believe in the tasks that the angels do. So point number two was to believe that they have been given specific responsibilities as is mentioned in the Quran and Sunnah. And then point number four is to believe that they actually do these tasks, that the angels actually do these tasks. So these are the four points that Shaykh ibn Uthaymin mentions that are compulsory upon every Muslim to believe in when it comes to the angels, when it comes to the angels. Now important thing to understand over here is that the Quran and Sunnah within of themselves did not enumerate these points. But rather when one makes you know, an analysis of the Quran and Sunnah, one can find that these are the things that are compulsory to believe in. These are the things that are compulsory to believe in. Now, let us look at some of the benefits of belief in the angels. Some of the benefits of belief in the angels. Benefit number one is that it prevents an individual from perpetually doing bad deeds. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us about the angels that, writes, that write down the deeds. He says, مَا يَرْفِضُ مِنْ قَوْلٍ إِلَّا لَدَيْهِ رَقِيبٌ عَتِيدٌ That not a word is uttered, not a sound is uttered, except that the angels are writing down every single thing that you say. So when you recognize that the angels are writing down every single thing that you say, it makes a person conscious of what he is saying and what he is doing. So an individual that he knows he will one day stand in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his book of life will be presented to him, he will be very cautious in terms of what is written and documented for him. Number two, a second benefit of angels is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the angels to help us. And a lot of the times you can see what a blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created these angels to be. I want to give you an example. In 2010, I was in Edmonton and the weather that day was minus 44 degrees. And it was, that's like without the wind chilled factor. With the wind chilled factor, I think it went in down into like the 50s or 60s. And what had happened was that some of the houses, their pipes froze, their pipes froze. So they were no longer able to get, you know, fresh water into the house. So what they had to do was, they had to go into like city hall with these containers of water, you know, like the big 20 liter water containers. They had to take those water containers to city hall where a truck would fill them up and then they would take it back home to their houses or to wherever they lived. And they use this for, you know, cooking and cleaning. They use this for the bathroom. They use this for, you know, all of its purposes that water has. Now you may think, you know, where is this story going? But I want you to look at how easily Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala transports water 
millions of leaders, and I'll share the experience behind that, that when we went to City Hall to pick up this water, you would see old people, subhanAllah, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, with these 20 liter containers, struggling to carry, you know, these 20 liters of water. That some of them would have to put in their car, they weren't able to do so. Some of them have to climb upstairs, they aren't able to do so. And this is just with 20 liters of water. And subhanAllah, you know, you, you felt bad for the senior citizens at that time, you know, wishing that someone was there to help them. But it also makes one reflect on the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala transports literally millions of liters of water. That you know, you have it out in the ocean, it condenses, goes up into the clouds, the clouds travel, you know, miles away, and then the, 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 the clouds send down the rain through the, you know, help of the angels. So it's here it shows you that one of the benefit of the angels is that the angels are actually there to benefit mankind and to benefit the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So a second benefit of the belief in angels is that it makes a person grateful that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created a creation to look after the human beings. Likewise, we see in the battle of Badr, we look in the battle of Uhud, that when the Muslims needed help in those battles, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He sent the angels to help the Muslims in those battles. So it helps an individual be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A third blessing that one recognizes from the creation of angels is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He creates a creation that is unable to disobey Him. Now I want you to imagine if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had placed that burden on human beings. Imagine if Allah had placed upon us that we were unable to disobey Him. How difficult life would be. You know, imagine if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He said that you will cease to desist the second, cease to exist, the second you disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, some of us would be alive for a couple of seconds and then khalas, life is over. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He shows us that He gave that heavy burden to the angels, but He didn't give it to human beings. He didn't give it to human beings. He gave them a similar burden, which is just as heavy, that we will be held accountable for the deeds that we commit, and we are responsible for you know, giving da'wah to people, and all these other responsibilities. But He didn't give us the responsibility of purely obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at all times. Right? So this is something that he gave the angels, so it shows us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed us mercy and showed us you know, uh, his generous nature by allowing us to commit sin and allowing us to repent at the same time that he did not hold us to account like he did to the angels that he did not allow them to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So those are some of the benefits of belief in the angels. Now who can repeat for me, what are the pillars of belief in the angels? What are we required to believe when it comes to the angels? Go ahead. So number one, we believe in their existence. Rules, general and specific rules. Excellent. Fantastic. There's specific deeds that they actually do them. Yes, and the last one. There are attributes, so we believe in the attributes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them. So we believe in their existence, we believe in their general and specific roles, we believe in their attributes, and we actually believe that they fulfill the tasks that they have been described with in the Quran and the Sunnah. And then we mention some of the benefits of believing in them. Then we come to the books that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed. Then the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam continues on to say that after belief in the angels, his books as well. So he doesn't mention to believe in his books, but as a continuation from the previous sentence structure, we understand that it means to believe in his books as well. And now belief in his books as well, also have four articles of faith. Belief in his books also have four articles of faith. Number one, that these books truly were revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That the books truly were revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number two, one must specifically believe in all of the books and scriptures that are mentioned in the Quran and Sunnah. One must specifically believe in all the books that are mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah. Number three, one must believe in each and every single aspect of revelation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent down. So anything that can be proven to be true from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the previous scriptures and in the current scripture, it is compulsory to believe in. It is compulsory to believe in. And then Shaykh ibn Uthimin, he goes on to a tangent on the fourth one, 
which is clearly very disputable in terms of what he is saying. He says one must also believe in the non-abrogated revelations of the Qur'an. One must also believe in the non-abrogated revelations in the Qur'an. And we'll get into what that means. So number one, let us talk about the books that were revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The books that were revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He sent down previous books. From those books are those that we know and from those books are those that we don't know. From the books that we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down, He sent down the Torah to Musa. He sent down to the Injil to Isa. He sent down the Zabur to Dawood. He sent the Quran to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And then He sent the Suhaf which were to Ibrahim and to Musa. These are the scriptures that we are, which we know of by name that are mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah. Number two, is that this differences between the previous scriptures and the current scripture is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He took the responsibility Himself to preserve the Quran. Whereas the previous scriptures, it is the human beings that were responsible for their preservation. And like all human, you know, I guess activities, they are deficient in one way or another. So the human beings fell short in preserving and documenting and that is why over time, those books changed as well. Number three, in terms of believing in all of the scriptures, you'll notice that this is a modern day tendency as well as something that is mentioned of the previous nations, that we tend to believe in what suits us. So if we see a part of the Quran that you know, befits our agenda and you know, pro progresses our agenda, we'll believe in it. But if we find something in the Quran that goes against what we believe in or goes against our agendas, then we'll notice that a lot of the people, they tend to reject it. Whereas Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He heavily criticized the previous nations for this attribute. He heavily criticized the previous nations for this attribute, that they would chain, that they would not believe holistically in the revelation that was given to them. So as a Muslim, you want to make sure that just like you believe in one part of the Quran, you believe in all aspects of the Quran as well. And then the fourth and last point that Shaykh ibn Uthaymeen rahimahullah mentions is that we must believe in the non-abrogated revelations of the Quran. And what he means by this is that when you look into the Quran, you will notice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He mentions in Surah Al-Baqarah, that we do not abrogate a verse in the Quran except that we bring something which is better than it or equivalent to it, right? So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about abrogation. And when you look at abrogation, let us understand what it means. Abrogation means one of two things and it has three forms. Abrogation can be that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes a verse out of the Quran, but the ruling still remains. Or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala leaves a verse in the Quran, but the ruling no longer remains. Or a third form of abrogation is that the verse is taken out as well as the ruling is taken out. As well as the ruling is taken out. And in terms of these forms of abrogation, the scholars actually differ. Did all three of forms of abrogation actually take place? And if you do a complete analysis, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, but it seems yes, that there are verses that were taken out from the Quran and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala replaced them with other verses. And there are certain rulings that were applicable, but then became no longer applicable. So these are all different types of abrogation and a Muslim is required to believe in the non-abrogated verses. So as a Muslim, you are required to believe in those verses that were not abrogated. If you do not believe in the verses that were abrogated, then this is a matter of difference of opinion. But according to Shaykh Ibn Uthaymeen, it is not one of the integral components of believing in revelation. It is not one of the integral components of believing in revelation. So now, <coughs> looking at previous scriptures, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He talks about how the people of the past distorted the message of their scriptures. They distorted the message of their scriptures. So the first way that they distorted the message of their scriptures is that they distorted the meanings or interpretation of it while they left the wording the same. So you'll find that in the past, the people of the past from you know, Bani Israel and from the, the Nasara, that the wording of their texts was there but they misinterpreted the meanings of it altogether. So this is the first type of distortion that took place. Number two, is that they actually changed the text itself. 
So now we're not playing with the meaning itself, but now they're actually playing with the wording. So sometimes they will have no problem introducing a new wording. They'll no, have no problem taking out a wording and they will have no problem, you know, completely changing up the wording altogether if it suits their purposes. And then number three, the third type of distortion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions of them is that they conceal it. So meaning that the wording is there, the meaning is there, but when it came time to rule by those things, they would hide it. Either from their own people, either from their own clergy, or just by hiding it from not acting upon it. So these are the distortions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that the people of the past did. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives these warnings so that the Muslims will take heed of it. That the Muslims will take heed of it. Now, what are some of the benefits of believing in the previous scriptures? What are some of the benefits of believing in the previous scriptures? Number one, it is to realize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at no point in time has left mankind without guidance. So as long as mankind has existed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has always been sending them some sort of guidance. Either in the form of a messenger that spoke to them or giving them a physical book with which they could read and understand and implement and construct their lives by. And this is one of the most important aspects of the Quran is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us this divine manual through which we live our day-to-day -day lives. No, we do not live our day-to-day -day lives just through our own whims and desires, but rather Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us this Quran to make it as a way of life. And that is the primary benefit of the belief in the scriptures that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not left you without guidance, but rather Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told you how you should live your lives. Number two is that belief in the scriptures is one of the miracles of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the levels of miracle are different based upon in how much detail you actually study them. So the lowest level of miracles is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala kept the stories consistent, proving the divine nature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the story of Yusuf alayhi salam in the Torah and he revealed the story in the Quran as well. And you will see that the, since the source is exactly the same, then the, sto then the story or the details of the story are the same as well. And this is miraculous. Why? Because it proves that this story is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because had it been from a human being, had it been from any of his creation, again, it would have been uh, you know, distorted in one way or another. It would have changed. The details would have been you know, drastically different. Another miracle when it comes to the scriptures that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given is the effects that they have on the people. So you'll notice that when a Jewish person is reading the Torah, a Christian person is reading the Injil, the Muslim person is reading the Quran, it always tends to have a spiritual effect on the individual. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in His true words allows a spiritual benefit to take place. A third benefit of belief in the scriptures is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows his miraculous nature in the preservation of the Quran and how easily he allowed the Quran to be preserved. How easily he allowed the Quran to be preserved. So there's no other book throughout our history as a human civilization that has been documented and preserved in memories like the Quran has. Again, proving the miraculous nature of these books. Now one last point to mention uh, about the belief in the scriptures is that you'll notice throughout time when did people start going astray from their faiths and their religions they started going astray as soon as they abandoned the books that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given them or started to distort them and you'll notice that in our times the exact same thing happens that as soon as Muslims start abandoning the Quran reading it and implementing it and trying to understand it that is not only when their Iman decreases but Muslims lose their identity they lose their focus they lose their concept of community and everything breaks down for the Muslim community so part of the focus of the Muslim community should be reuniting with the Quran and trying to find practical ways through which Muslims will read the Quran and understand the Quran and implement the Quran. And that's actually one of the reasons why we decided that, you know what, this year since Ramadan is getting closer and closer, we want to dedicate the One Ummah Conference to the Quran. And that is why it is called the Divine Manual. Through this very reason that we hope that as Muslims reconnect with the Quran, it will fix all facets of their lives and the problems that the Muslim community faces as well. The Messenger of Allah goes on to say 
and belief in his messengers now there's some interesting points in the wording that the messenger of Allah وسلم, chooses over here so you'll notice that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he talks about prophets and messengers he can use the term Nabi and he can use the term Rasul and both of them indicate a person a particularly a male that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen to send forward to a people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen to send forward to a people. Now the question arises, why did the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam choose the term Rasul over here in terms, uh, instead of the term Nabi? And the scholars mentioned that the reason why the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used the term Rasul over here is because generally speaking, when they talk about the difference of opinion amongst Nabi and Rasul, they always mention that Rasul is something more specific than the Nabi. What are the, what are the things that make it more specific? That is what they differ over. But they always mention it is something more specific. Then there's also opinion that Nabi and Rasul are exactly the same as well. So whatever the case may be, the Rasul is always encompassed by the Nabi. The Rasul is always encompassed by the Nabi. So if you believe in a Rasul, then by default, you must believe in the Nabi as well. Because every Rasul is a Nabi by definition. So that is why the Messenger of Allah chose the term Rasul. Now in terms of what is a Rasul? And how does a person become a Rasul? And so things like that, let us briefly get into that. Number one is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decides to choose who are the prophets and messengers. And this is not, you know, a human choice that is made. And subhanAllah, I'm sure most of you must have seen this by now, but the Peace TV conference, where you see that Indian man come up, you know, and asking a question to uh, Sheikh Yusuf Idris. And he starts off his question, he's like, uh, you know, I can't remember how he starts off, but he's like, don't laugh at me, I have some truth to reveal to you, I'm a messenger from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you can see that the guy standing behind him, he's in like, what is going on? Who is this guy? He claimed to be the Mahdi. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he clearly tells us in the Quran, in Surah Hajj, that it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that chooses the messengers from the angels and from men. So it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that chooses the messengers. And rather there's nothing that a human being can do that will you know, make him a prophet or messenger from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number two, is that what is the actual difference between a Nabi and a Rasul? What is the actual difference between a Nabi and a Rasul? So let us look at the difference of opinions. Opinion number one will take the basic level that there is no difference between a Nabi and a Rasul. This opinion states that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the term Nabi and the term Rasul, they are exactly one and the same thing. Opinion number two, this states that Nabi and Rasul are different in the sense that the Rasul <coughs> were given a new message whereas the Nabi was given a continuation of the previous message. So a Rasul was given a new message and a Nabi was given a continuation of the previous message. Number three, this is the opinion that states that the Rasul is the one that is sent to a people and his people reject him. Whereas a Nabi is the one who was sent to a people and his people accept him. So that is opinion number three. And we will stick with these three general opinions in terms of the difference between a Nabi and a Rasul. And if you want to use a fourth opinion, then the Rasul can also be this one that was sent to a new people with a new scripture and he was rejected by his people. Whereas the Nabi was not given a new scripture, nor was he rejected by his people. So you can combine opinions two and three and make it a fourth opinion as well. In terms of you know, which one are we required to believe in? This is one of those issues you're not required to have a specific belief in. As long as you believe in the prophets and messengers as a whole, then this is sufficient without knowing what is the specific differences between an Nabi and a Rasul. But what is clear though, is that there clearly are differences between a Nabi and a Rasul. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it very, very explicit, as does the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi When he mentions that Adam alayhi salam was the first prophet and Nuh alayhi salam was the first Rasul. Right? So the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa made it very explicit. So there are differences. What are those differences? Bidhanillahi ta'ala, when you study Aqeedah more in depth, then you can define a position at that time. 
when it comes to the messengers as well, Shaykh Ibn Uthaymin he mentions four points of belief that are compulsory for all the Muslims to have when it comes to the prophets and messengers. Number one is that one must believe that the message of all of the prophets was the same. That they all called to obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to worship Him alone. So one must believe that all of that the message of all of the prophets was exactly the same in terms of calling to obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and calling to the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number two, one must believe specifically in all of the prophets and messengers that are mentioned in the Quran and Sunnah and generally believe in those prophets and messengers that are not mentioned by name. So specifically the ones that are mentioned in the Quran, we have 25 of them that are mentioned in the Quran, and in the Sunnah mentions a few of them as well. So we're specifically required to believe in them by name. But there are prophets that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not tell us about, we're generally required to believe in them as well. Number three, is that one is required to believe everything that is authentically attributed to those prophets. One is required to believe everything that is authentically attributed to those prophets. So anything that is attributed to the Prophet ﷺ, anything that is authentically attributed to the previous prophets, we are required to believe in as well. And then the fourth and last point he mentions is that we are required to submit, accept, and act accordingly to those teachings. We are required to submit, accept, and act accordingly to the teachings that the prophets came with. So submit, accept, and act accordingly to the teachings that the prophet came with. And you'll notice that this is one of the unique things about Islam, that Islam is a religion that came to accept all the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Where you'll notice as the previous nations, some of them denied Isa, some of them denied Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Whereas Islam is the only religion that accepts all of the prophets. And you'll notice that this belief in Islam, of belief in the prophets, is a very integral belief. Because if you look at Nuh salam, during the time of Nuh salam, Nuh salam was the first Rasul sent to them, right? But when you look at how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the people of Nuh when they rejected uh, Nuh salam as a prophet, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mention about the people of Nuh? That the people of Nuh uh, rejected Al-Mursaleen, that they rejected all of the prophets. So the, the point that we get from this from Surah Al-Shu'ara is that denying one of the prophets, rejecting one of the prophets, is it is as if you deny all of the prophets and reject all of the prophets. So believing in prophets is an integral part of our faith, is part of our faith. Then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, goes on to belief in the last day. Actually, sorry, now we get into what are some of the benefits that you get in terms of believing in the prophets and messengers? So number one, we get that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He knows us best and thus He gave us physical examples of what to live up to. So human beings are very visual. An individual can hear something, but it will not have the same effect as him seeing it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He sent physical examples in terms of how human beings should conduct themselves. Number two, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose to send human beings as messengers so that the people can relate to them. Had Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent angels, the angels would not have the problems that human beings have. So the fact that the prophets and messengers went through their trials and went through their tribulations, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose them intentionally so that the human beings can relate to their experience, relate to their human experience. Number three, that it gives human beings an ideal example to strive for, right? So you have emulating them as point number one, and then point number three is that you have something to strive for. That now that you know that you can relate to this creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have something to strive for in terms of what you can be like. So in terms of each noble attribute, you'll notice that each prophet and messenger was known for their traits and attributes. So when you think about you know, uh, courage, you think about Musa alayhi salam. When you think about patience, you think about Ayyub, and you think about Yusuf. You think about a person restraining themselves, you think about Yusuf. You think about, um, you know, a person being, uh, you know, 
having uh, the ability to, I guess, just be patient with his people. You think about the Prophet Muhammad you think about eloquence, you think about the Prophet Muhammad So these are all things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed us in these prophets and messengers so that we can aspire to be like them, so that we can aspire to be like them. Now we move on to belief in the last day. Belief in the last day. Now in terms of belief in the last day, Shaykh ibn Uthaymin rahimahullah, he mentions three things that we are required to believe in. Three things that we are required to believe in. When we talk about belief in the last day, he says we are required to believe in resurrection after the blowing of the second horn. So as we know that from the events that will take place on in the hereafter, the beginning of the hereafter, is that it will be the trumpet that will be blown. And then after the trumpet is blown for the second time, mankind will be resurrected and they will be judged by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you're required to believe in that. Number two, you're required to believe in the actual reckoning and accounting of deeds. So you'll notice that the philosophers of the past, they believed that the deeds that we do can never be judged. They can never be judged. They said according to them, these deeds that we perform, if I speak a truthful word, what weight will this have on a scale? Because words have no weight themselves. But as a Muslim, we believe that our deeds actually will be judged and they will be placed on scales and they will have weight to them. And they will have weight to them. And then number three, the third important part is belief in Jannah and An-Nar. Belief in paradise and belief in the hellfire. And belief in the hellfire. And according to Shaykh ibn Uthaymeen, these are the three pillars that are required for a Muslim to believe in, in the hereafter. Number one, the resurrection. Number two, the judgment of deeds. And number three, belief in the heaven and the hell. Now, certain contentions have been raised here as well. That as a Muslim, what happens if you deny, you know, belief of the punishment of the grave? As is rampant in some of the groups of Islam, that they denied the, the, the punishment of the grave. They said that the punishment of the grave is something that will not actually happen. And it is something that is completely metaphorical. What happens in that situation? Now what has happened throughout the history of Islam that those groups that did deny the punishment of the grave or you know the accountability in the grave, the scholars of Islam still treated them as Muslims, still treated them as Muslims. And this goes into a concept of usul al-fiqh that one is a dalil qat'i and one is a dalil dhanni. That the proof that we have, one is it certain beyond a shadow of a doubt and one is it something that is not absolutely certain but we still act upon it. And they consider, some of the scholars considered the, the accountability of the grave as a matter which is dhanni. And based upon something which is dhanni, if you were to deny it, you are sinful. And it does not take you outside the fold of Islam. However, it is only something that is certain without a shadow of a doubt that if you were to deny it, then this would take you outside the fold of Islam. And this is one of the reasons that Shaykh ibn Uthaymeen rahimahullah didn't mention it. Is that the dalil that is used for the grave is something which is dhanni. But from our perspectives as Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, even if something is dhanni, we believe in it and our actions have to show in accordance to it. Our actions have to show in accordance to it. So now, what are some of the benefits that we get of belief in the Day of Judgment? What are some of the benefits that we get, get from belief in the Day of Judgment? Number one is that it prevents the slave of Allah from oppressing others. It prevents the slave from oppressing others. Because he realizes that even though he may get away from oppression in this life, from being, you know, being oppressive in this life, on the Day of Judgment, there's no way he can escape it. That on that day, he will have nowhere to flee to. So any form of oppression that you perform in this dunya, you will be held accountable for it in the hereafter. You will be held accountable for it in the hereafter. Number two, the second benefit of belief in the Day of Judgment is that at times as human beings, we will go through trials that no one recognizes and understands the pain of except us ourselves. That no matter how much you may try to explain it to someone, that feeling that you have inside yourself cannot be explained by words, cannot be understood by anyone else. And that is why the reward of such events in your life is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. 
Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only one that understands what you go through as an individual. And likewise, you will be compensated based upon that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows, and it was the human beings that did not know. Number three, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala compensates on the day of judgment with ultimate mercy. So that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he tells us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has 100 mercies of which he only sent down one of them to this earth through which a mother will show mercy towards her child. And he has saved 99 mercies for the day of judgment for when he judges us and one hour reckoning takes place. And that the Messenger of Allah tells us that on that day he has forewritten for himself that my mercy will overcome my wrath. So belief in the day of judgment uh, necessitates that a person believe and have high hopes in the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That no matter how much he may have sinned, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has dictated for himself for that day that his mercy will overcome his wrath. That his mercy will overcome his wrath. Now we get to the last portion of the Articles of Faith and it is the last portion we will be discussing for tonight. And that is belief in divine decree. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa he goes on to say, وَأَن تُؤْمِنُوا بِالْقَدَرْ خَيْرِهِ وَشَرِّهِ That you believe in Qadr, the good of it and the bad of it. So now the first question arises, why did the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa repeat the, the verb أَن تُؤْمِنُوا That it is for you to believe. Why did the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa repeat this? And the scholars mentioned, three reasons as to why the Messenger of Allah repeated it. Number one is that after a long sentence structure, you re-emphasize the verb or so you re-present the verb that you're using. So after mentioning five articles of faith and he doesn't mention tu'minu in the beginning of them, he mentions it over here in front of the sixth one so that an individual may understand that the Messenger of Allah is mentioning that you need to have Iman in Qadr, the good of it and the bad of it. Allah knows best, but this is the weakest opinion out of the three. Number two, is that the Messenger of Allah is mentioning the verb and to, to have Iman again as a form of emphasis that out of all of these things, you know, you have to have belief in that and as well as this. So it is a form of emphasis that the Messenger of Allah is repeating it again. And then the third reason why the scholars mention that the Messenger of Allah mentions and it is to believe is to show the importance of Qadr. That Qadr is something very, very specific to the religion of uh, Muhammad in the sense that it is one of those things that will be a cause of people going astray and that is why it is very important to believe in it properly. And this is what you actually see, that after the deviation of the Khawarij in terms of Iman, the first deviation you see after that is that of Qadr. That during the time of the Sahaba, during the ending of the time of the Sahaba, you see this. And this is why if you actually look in the beginning of Sahih Muslim, when the hadith of Jibreel is actually mentioned, it starts off with people coming to Abdullah bin Amr, talking about people who no longer believe in Qadr properly. And this is when Abdullah bin Amr actually mentions the hadith of Jibreel. This is when Abdullah bin Amr actually mentions the hadith of Jibreel. So one of the main reasons why people will go astray uh, is because of their lack of understanding of Qadr. And you know, how many times do we see this in, in our day and age when people say, you know, how can you believe in a God that is meant to be merciful, but there's so much chaos. Or if God wanted me to be righteous, He would have made me righteous. You see these forms of arguments presented all the time. And these arguments directly deal with Qadr in understanding the decree that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent. So, what are the required belief in Qadr? What is the required belief in Qadr? Required belief in Qadr is also of four parts. It is also of four parts. Number one, it is to believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows everything. So everything that existed, everything that will exist, everything that currently does exist, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows it all. Some of the scholars added to this, that if there was a different way of a timeline proceeding, the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have even known that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have even known that. 
So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows the present, the past and the future, that which is seen and that which is unseen as well. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge is encompassed by all things. Number two is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had Qadr documented 50,000 years before the creation of the heavens and the earth. So the Messenger of Allah sallallahu as he reported in Sahih Muslim, he said that the first thing <coughs> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created was the pen and he told the pen to write everything that will exist from now until the end of time. And this was 50,000 years before the creation of the heavens and the earth. Now this Qadr is known as the Qadr that is preserved in the Loh al-Mahfuz. And the Qadr that is mentioned in the Loh al-Mahfuz is the Qadr that does not change at all. So the Qadr that has been written in Loh al-Mahfuz will never change whatsoever. And that is why when you look at narrations such as nothing increases one's lifespan, like keeping Silatul Raham, like keeping good ties with your family, or nothing changes one's Qadr, like Dua, this is not the Qadr that it is referring to. The Qadr that is written in the Loh al-Mahfuz, that is a Qadr that never changes. So what is the Qadr that it is referring to? There are three other types of Qadr that are mentioned. There are three other types of Qadr that are mentioned. Number one, the Qadr that is written when a child is born. So when a child is born, the Qadr that is written are his actions, his lifespan, his rizq. Will he be happy or will he be, you know, someone who is shaqi? Shaqi is not only upset, but someone who is misfortunate as well. Someone who is misfortunate as well. So this is one type of Qadr that can change through dua and can change through righteous deeds and sin. The second type of Qadr, the Qadr that is written in Ramadan. So we have in, in Ramadan a night known as Laylatul Qadr in which the Qadr of the, pre, of the following year is documented. It is written down during that time. That is something that can be changed through dua and can be changed through righteous deeds and the sins that we commit. Then there's a third type of Qadr which is reported and attributed to some of the predecessors where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he says in Surah Al-Rahman that every day he's busy with an affair. They said this is the daily Qadr that is written down. And there are reports in the Tabrani that authenticate this. There are reports in Tabrani that authenticate this. And this is the third type of Qadr that actually can be changed through dua and through righteous deeds and even the, the sins that we commit. So the Qadr that is written in Loh al-Mahfuz that can never change. The third principle or the third pillar of belief in Qadr is that nothing happens except by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Nothing happens except by the will and permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not willed something or has not given permission for something to happen, it will not happen. And only when Allah has willed and has given permission for it to happen, that is when it will happen. And then the fourth and last thing that is mentioned in terms of uh, our belief in Qadr is that Everything besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is something which is created. Everything besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is something which is created. So even our, the actions that we do are a creation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even the actions that we do are a creation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So let us repeat those four again, bithinlahi ta'ala. Number one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows everything. Anything that you can possibly imagine, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows is past, present, future, and if there was a different reality to it, Allah would have known that as well. Number two, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala documented all of Qadr in the Loh al-Mahfuz 50,000 years before the creation of the heavens and the earth. And this is the type of Qadr that can never change. Number three, is that the nothing will happen except by the permission and will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Nothing can happen except by the permission and will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then number four is that even our actions as human beings are a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even our actions as human beings are a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now what are some of the benefits of belief in Qadr? What are some of the benefits of belief in Qadr? Number one is that it person the importance of taking action because the messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam he clearly tells us 
that if you were to have tawakkul in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a tawakkul that he is truly deserving of, then he would provide for you just like he provides for the bird. Now how does he describe this bird? He describes the bird as it leaves its house early in the morning and comes out with its stomach full. Meaning that the bird did not just sit in its nest waiting for Allah to send down some worms into its mouth. But rather this bird flew out, sought the worms and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provided for it. So part of your belief in Qadr is taking action in your life. And if you're not taking action, then you have no reason to blame Qadr for the shortcomings in your life. Number two, is that part of belief in Qadr is realizing that you are only a small, small creation in Allah's vast creation. That when you think about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created all of our lives in its distinct and unique manner. Are you, where are you from originally? Where's your family originally from? Ethiopia. Ethiopia. And Araf, you're originally from Yemen, correct? Hisham, you're originally from Algeria, correct? And you are, Ahmed, you're originally from Egypt, correct? And you are originally from? From Somalia. From Somalia. Myself, half Indian, half Pakistani. It was the Qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before the creation of the heavens and the earth that He wrote that our ancestors would accept Islam and that we would continue one generation to the next. Finally, our families would move to Canada, mine moved to Montreal, your families moved somewhere else. And somehow, some way or another, on May 24th, 2013, we would be sitting here. This is, you know, when you understand the beauty of Qadr, you truly understand how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in control of everything. And that if, if a human being wanted to take control of these things, he wouldn't be able to. Because it's too much that is beyond his capability. So it reteaches you just to be patient, that whatever happens, just be patient with it. Because it is part of a greater plan that is unfolding. Number three, is that Qadr teaches us to have faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That part of our faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that He is the most just, that He is the most wise, and He is the most merciful, and He is the most loving. Therefore, every single thing that happens in our lives is a manifestation of that ultimate justice, that ultimate love and compassion, that ultimate mercy, and that ultimate wisdom. Whether we recognize it or not, we still need to believe in it because this is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Himself. The fourth and last thing from the benefits of belief in Qadr is that an individual can console himself. That in life, sometimes you will strive your utmost hardest and it just isn't meant for you. And when you strive your utmost hardest and it isn't meant for you, rather than blaming yourself, you console yourself with the fact that look, I tried my best, I put my trust in Allah, perhaps this was not written for me and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed something better for me. So these are some of the benefits that are mentioned in Qadr. And the next week, ta'ala, we will be talking about the concept of Ihsan and we'll be talking about the signs of the Day of Judgment. And then we'll conclude with the hadith of Jibreel ta'ala, in that halaqa. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barak ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. I will take three questions bithnillahi ta'ala. Go ahead. Right. So how do you uh, reconcile between we look at the scripture and believe in what's true and what's not true? Fantastic. So when the Prophet وسلم, reprimanded Umar ibn al-Khattab for this, he reprimanded Umar ibn al-Khattab for the fact that he was looking to the Torah for guidance. He was looking to the Torah for guidance. You can read the Torah to see what is inside the Torah from the stories, from the lessons and all of that stuff. But in terms of developing new guidance from it, then the Qur'an is the ultimate source of guidance. And it either affirms or further emphasizes the same concepts as the Torah and the Injil did. And that is what Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu was reprimanded for. And Allah knows best. Number two. Uh, I have a question like... Yes. Like uh, one of the persons asked to read that... Sorry, he asked who? Okay. And he replied that it's like standing on uh, one leg. So I don't know if you have heard about it. What does that mean? So that's why <laughs> I have no idea what that means. Do you have a comment on that? Oh, it's a question? Okay. 
In terms of, you know, our predecessors when it came to Qadr, they referred to Qadr as the secret of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So while we are required to believe in the Qadr that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has for us, at the same time, we're not meant to dwell too much into it, right? Because when you dwell too much into Qadr, since it deals with the ultimate knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there are clearly some elements of Qadr that we will never be able to understand. Now in terms of Qadr is like standing on one leg, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin to explain something like that. Do you want to comment on that? But why isn't the same that the same thing as standing on two legs? Because <laughs> you can still stand on two legs and still not have control of everything. Not without legs. <laughs> okay, Alhamdulillah. Allah knows best. Now we have a lot of questions. General rule is three. But who has questions? Let's see who has questions. So we have one, two, three, four, five. Kalas, these five questions, and that's it. Actually, six. You have a hand up? I'll give you a Go ahead. Yes. What does that mean? Only rulings are abrogated, and you don't believe in an abrogated ruling and act upon it. So this is an example of, you know, Shaykh ibn Thaymin <coughs> in his explanation, he gives the example of someone who believes in smoking. So, as, and I'll give you the example. So that he sees all these signs that smoking is bad, right? And he knows, he sees the physical effects of how bad smoking is on himself, yet he doesn't develop the habit of giving up smoking. So does this person truly have Iman or not? And this goes back into whole linguistic definition of it. But part of having Iman in the abrogated verses is that they existed, that they were part of the revelation. But in terms of Amal, this is not a part of it. So this is a similar example that Shaykh Ibn Thaymin gave. In terms of the details, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala knows best. Go ahead. Uh, you said Allah would have 99 voices on the Day of Judgment. Yes. Is it, is it when uh, Prophet Muhammad would intercede for us or would it be also include other occasions? No, it will include other occasions as well. It will include other occasions as well. The intercession of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is known as Shafa'at al-Kubra. And that is what will cause the intercession, uh, that is through his intercession, the Day of Judgment or the Day of Reckoning will actually begin on that day. And that is a big blessing within of itself, but that, is not, that will not encompass all 99 of Allah's mercies. But rather there's much, much more to it. Excellent. Our young brother in the back that was sitting behind you seems to have be gone. Actually, you moved over here, mashallah. Go ahead. How do you know if you're a prophet of Allah? In this day and age, there are no prophets from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he tells us in the 40th verse of Surah Al-Ahzab um, that the Messenger of Allah is the seal of all prophets. He is the seal of all prophets. So in this day and age, there are no prophets. But the way they knew about it in the past is that an angel would come and would give them revelation and through this revelation they would know that they are a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is one of the ways another thing is that the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would give them miracles so if they were able to perform miracles this is another way that they would know that they were a prophet from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala number three is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would give them special and preferential treatment over the rest of the creation so that is someone that is a way that they would know that they are prophets does that make sense good job who is next go ahead Right. Excellent question. So now, part of our belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala consists that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most knowing, the most loving, the most merciful, and the most just. And that is when, when you discuss, you know, giving da'wah to people, the first thing you want to discuss with them is the existence of Allah. After they accept the existence of Allah, you discuss the role of Allah. After they, they accept the role of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you talk about the authenticity of the Qur'an as a divine book. And then the last point is how that the Prophet was a truthful messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Those are like the four stages of da'wah. Now, the reason why they mention these four stages of da'wah is that once you understand and believe that Allah is the most just and the most loving and the most merciful, you will come to accept that you are not meant to understand everything, 
right? That you as a creation, your, our understanding is very limited. And that is why certain events will happen in the world that when you witness them and you see them, you may think, where is the mercy in this act? Where is, you know, the wisdom in this act? But then a hundred years down the line, you see the significance of that act that it played in history that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings about the wisdom from it. So in these evil atrocities, even in those evil atrocities, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created much wisdom. That is a means of people starting to show generosity. That without those evil atrocities happening in the world, people would not donate their money. Number two, it is a reason why people turn back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That during times of hardship, when the creation cannot help them, the human being realizes that I need to depend on my creator himself. Number three, it brings about a sense of humility in the rest of creation. That one day these people were perfectly fine, now they're in a state of tribulation. The next day I could be in that state of tribulation as well. Number four, it creates a source of empathy between the human beings. That if you create, if I care for someone else, then ta'ala in the future someone will care for me as well. So these are all some of the reasons why these quote-unquote evil things happen. But from a Muslim perspective, we believe there's no such thing as pure evil. That even in what the human beings may consider evil, there's always hidden elements of good. That even in the creation of shaitan, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought about some goodness from it. That when we fight off the desires that shaitan instills inside of us, we get rewarded. Every time we say, A'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim we get rewarded. Every time we say, Bismillah, before we eat or enter our house to ward off the shaitan, we get rewarded. So from a Muslim's perspective, there is no such thing as evil. But we submit to the fact that everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created is filled with love, wisdom, and mercy. Whether we realize it now or not, eventually we will come to see it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. There was a last question, or was that number five? I was just curious that you didn't touch on, like you heard the, you have to leave the prophet, but you didn't touch on that prophet who said, he's the last prophet of Allah. That I didn't touch upon the messenger of Allah being the last prophet. I would generally assume that's common knowledge. I would generally assume that's common knowledge amongst the Muslims, at least. No, fantastic. That's a good question. Jazakallah khair. Jazakallah khair. We'll conclude with that. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Ashadu la ilaha illant. Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.